Okay, good evening, everybody. My name's James Putzel, and I'm the director of the Crisis States Research Center here in the uh, Development Studies Institute at the London School of Economics. We're um, a center of academic research funded by the Department for International Development of the UK government. And together with our partners in Africa and Asia and Latin American universities, the center is devoted to studying problems of state collapse, uh, possibilities of state resilience, state reconstruction, and economic development in the global south. I'd like to take the occasion to invite you to look at and explore, look at our website, um, explore our publications, and come to the regular events that we're holding here at the LSC as uh, the new phase of our research begins to, to, to bear some fruit. Next term, uh, on May 17th, we're happy to announce that General Romeo Dallaire, who commanded the UN forces in uh, Rwanda, uh, will be giving a public lecture in the Crisis States uh, uh, Center series, and that will be around the issue of international military interventions and the constraints facing United Nations. Um, so keep that in mind in your diary. In recent years, uh, with the eyes of the world turned on the troubles of the Middle East, the devastating events that have befallen uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and its people have passed almost unnoticed. By now, after many explorations in popular film, more people are aware of what went on in, in Congo's neighboring country, Rwanda, where nearly a million people were slaughtered in 1994, while the international community essentially stood by and watched. And some of you probably have heard about um, the wars that have engulfed the DRC, or formerly known as Zaire, between 1996 and the year 2002, being described as Africa's first world war, but few people realized that nearly four million people were killed as a result of these conflicts. Since, since 2002, there's been a halting progress towards peace, and there is a giant hope in the international community that elections that recently took place uh, last year will usher in a period of peace and reconstruction. It was a phenomenal achievement to hold elections in the DRC, um, and, and it could be a new beginning. The country remains, however, riddled in conflict, and its population is mired in poverty, despite being surrounded by enormous untapped potential for economic development. So tonight, Professor René Le Marchand is going to speak to us about the future of Congo in a talk that's entitled From Kabila to Kabila, reflecting on the past to think about the future. René Le Marchand has his PhD from the University of California at Los Angeles, and today he's emeritus professor uh, of political science at the University of Florida, where he taught for many years. When, uh, over the years, he wanted to escape the sunshine of Florida, and when he wasn't going to the Great Lakes region of Africa, Professor Le Marchand taught in Copenhagen, Helsinki, uh, Concordia in Montreal, a particular favorite city of mine, Berkeley in California, Brown and Smith College. 
And during the 1990s, after his retirement from, from teaching, he served as regional advisor on governance and democracy with USAID in, in, um, in Africa. Professor Le Marchand is well known for his scholarly work on the concept of clientelism and his analyses, analysis of genocide in Burundi. Uh, he's written many books, uh, six or seven of which you can find in the LSE uh, library and scores and scores of journal articles over the years. Most recently, he's been working on an edited volume of his writings on the Great Lakes. Uh, in fact, the talk tonight, I understand, is the last chapter right. in that book, which is soon, soon to come out. You can see recent work that he's, he's been doing on Burundi on the website of the Swiss Peace Foundation. Since René published his book, Awakening in the Belgian Congo, in 1964, He's followed the unfolding events in Congo Zaire more closely than most people. I can only say how honored we are tonight uh, to have you to speak to us. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, James, for your very kind introduction. You've set the, the bar very high. Uh, through your introduction, and I'm afraid that uh, you set the expectations of uh, people here tonight uh, so high that I probably won't be able to, uh, to meet them. But anyway, uh, thank you very much. And I'm not going to go through a detailed listing of all the indignities that I've suffered at the hands of Delta Airlines and British Airways, including uh, what I feared might be a crash landing at LaGuardia in a blinding uh, snowstorm. Uh, just want to say that it's very good indeed to be in London, <laughs> where uh, the Londoners seem to be enjoying a Florida-like summer, at least compared to the chill factor uh, in, in New York. Well, uh, I want to uh, thank you, uh, James, for inviting me to uh, LSC, which is, of course, a very prestigious institution whose reputation has reached all the way to the backwoods of Florida. Even the locals are not always sure as to what the letters really mean. A friend of mine told me, why are you going to the London Stock Exchange? <laughs> uh, well, I had to uh, disabuse him of his uh, rural naivete uh, and... Uh, make him understand that I was referring to a much more noble and ancient uh, institution made illustrious by some of the uh, most brilliant minds in the English-speaking world. Uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, Harold Lasky, whose ghostly presence I can almost feel, all the way down to, uh, to James Putzel. Well, uh, since the um, title of my presentation is a little opaque, I thought I would try to clarify the main themes that I'm going to discuss here tonight. In trying to make sense of the uh, democratic transition in uh, the DRC, I think it's important, first of all, to identify the broad electoral trends revealed by the vote. That's the first thing I'm going to try to do. And after that, I would like to identify uh, what you might describe as the more enduring underlying forces 
uh, that may uh, persist over time and that might uh, bring to mind uh, parallels with what uh, you had in the Congo during the Mobutu era and during uh, Kabila uh, Pere. And finally, I will uh, try to uh, discuss critically what I think are the main threats to uh, the newly emergent Third Republic. <coughs> Pardon me? The mic. Oh, the this mic. Little, this little mic. Uh, can you hear me now? Okay. Well, by way of an introduction, let me uh, cite this quote from uh, John le Carre's latest novel. Uh, it is uh, the story of uh, the pragmatic bad guy who is reflecting uh, on the merits of multi-party elections uh, in, in the Congo. And he says this, Elections won't bring democracy. They'll bring chaos. The winners will scoop the pool and tell the losers to go fuck themselves. The losers will say the game was fixed and take to the bush. And since, since everyone voted on ethnic lines anyway, they'll be back to where they started and worse. Expletives aside, I think uh, the commentary sums up rather nicely the main uh, preoccupations of the uh, uh, international community in the aftermath uh, of the uh, elections. What is the likelihood of renewed violence if uh, electoral triumph translates into a winner-takes-all logic? Could it be that exclusion will pave the way for a reactivation of pockets of insurgency. How much credence should one be given, should be given to Jean-Pierre Benba's accusations of massive electoral fraud directed at Kabila's camp? And while most observers would agree that electoral processes, however uh, free and fair, are not going to produce uh, democracy, is this a sufficient reason for dismissing their significance as a meaningless ritual. Although some of the answers uh, must remain speculative, there's no doubt in my mind that the elections represent a major turning point. For one thing, uh, it has legitimized Kabila's succession to his father as the president of the Third Republic. Secondly, it has created a new space within which policies can be articulated, formulated, implemented, uh, a space in which uh, the provincial legislatures are going to play an increasingly important role. And uh, furthermore, uh, it has uh, introduced uh, new rules of the game, uh, moving the chessboard from a rather wobbly power-sharing arrangement to one uh, characterized by the formal trappings of democracy, if nothing else. After a bitterly contested two-stage presidential poll on July 30th and October 29th, Joseph Kabila became the first democratically elected president since independence with 50% of the vote in the runoff as against 42% to his nearest opponent, Jean-Pierre Bamba. Thus came to an end the long drawn out transition that began uh, in uh, 2002 
with the uh, accord with the Global and Comprehensive Peace Agreement of December 2002, later institutionalized through the power-sharing formula hammered out in 2003. Well, despite some unpromising signs, uh, predictions of widespread unrest proved unfounded. The uh, generally smooth uh, unfolding of the electoral process owes much, I think, to the uh, remarkable skills of the head of the Electoral Commission, the Abbé Apollinaire Malou-Malou, who was really confronted with a uh, fantastic uh, uh, number of logistical uh, hurdles, uh, printing some uh, 50,000, setting up some 50,000 polling stations, registering 25 million voters, recruiting thousands and thousands of poll watchers, making sure that the ballot papers would reach their destination in time, and managing the flow of some 1,200 election observers. Well, outside assistance also helped. In addition to the $500 million uh, electoral subsidy from the international community, the presence on the ground of some 17,000 UN troops and 1,400 European Union contingent proved crucial in preventing partisan clashes from getting out of hand. Well, the first point that I think ought to be uh, stressed here is that this has been a highly competitive race. Uh, You had about... 33 uh, presidential aspirants uh, running in the first round, later dropping to six during the uh, second round of the presidential elections. Some 9,700 candidates fought for a seat in the National Assembly, consisting of 362 elected and 58 co-opted members. Provincial elections were held during the uh, second round of the presidential uh, elections, and the assemblies are going to play a very important role in the new constitutional setup because uh, they, uh, they are not only are they electing the members of the Senate, but also uh, the uh, governors in each of the uh, 11 uh, provinces. Although the voting was not exempt of of fraud, the consensus of opinion among observers is that these irregularities did not substantially alter the uh, end result. But such was not the opinion of Bemba. Uh, No sooner were the results of the first round announced than violent scuffles erupted in Kinshasa between them, uh, between his supporters, and Kabila's resulting in some 23 people killed, 43 wounded, and Bemba's personal helicopter destroyed. Almost as pregnant uh, with disaster uh, was the uh, outcome of the uh, second round with uh, Bemba's blowhards uh, attacking the Supreme Court, which was held responsible for validating the results of the uh, second round of elections. Now, um, let me um, comment uh, briefly on what I think is the most significant trend uh, 
brought to light by the uh, presidential race, and that is the uh, regional polarization between uh, Bamba and uh, Kabila. If you look at uh, the map, you will note that uh, most of Bamba's support came from the uh, west and northwest, with the uh, dark shaded areas representing the areas of uh, greatest electoral strength, uh, whereas, uh, on the other hand, uh, Kabila's uh, support is concentrated essentially uh, in the uh, eastern provinces along a broad swath of territory uh, from the Katanga in the south, Maniema, uh, north and south Kivu, and the oriental province. The, uh, the dark shaded areas are areas where Kabila received between roughly uh, uh, 70 and 80 percent, I'm sorry, between 80 and 90 percent, and uh, those light-colored areas here between 70 and uh, 80 percent, and the more, uh, the light areas around uh, 60 percent, roughly, roughly. Now, the um, east-west divide, then, is the most notable and potentially destabilizing uh, feature of the new electoral map. Now, although ethnicity did play a part in some areas, an even more determining factor was regionalism. The gravitational pull of regional loyalties goes very far indeed in explaining Bamba's victory. Bamba uh, speaks Lingala fluently. Uh, he has the solid support of at least, uh, I would say, three-fourths of the population of Bakongo and Kinshasa. At least this was brought out during the first round. And the solid support of the majority, the vast majority of the people in Equator province. This is the Equator province. Uh, and his uh, main contender uh, in that part of the Congo was the son of the late Mobutu, uh, Francois uh, Mobutu, who uh, scored a fairly uh, high percentage of the vote, although I don't have the exact uh, figures here, figure here. Now, um, Bemba, uh, added to that, Bemba has been manipulating uh, the nationality issue with great skill. He was largely described as the son of the soil. He's described as a, 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 um, in, in Lingala, uh, uh, a Mwanaboka, uh, a native son, whereas uh, Kabila was uh, repeatedly tagged as a foreigner, as a uh, Mupaya. And he also uh, injected in his political campaign some very popular uh, theme songs, including the uh, widely popular Azamwana Congo, he is a son of the Congo. So the nationality, the nationality issue did uh, loom very large uh, in the uh, political uh, campaign. With regard to uh, Kabila's electoral triumph, uh, <clears throat> his uh, scores 
uh, ranked from 98% in North and South Kivu to 93% in Katanga, his native turf. But here again, ethnicity did not play a major role. Uh, Kabila's popularity in the East, I think, stems largely from the fact that he is perceived as uh, Rwanda's uh, strongest opponent in the Congo. And uh, also, one should add the fact that uh, uh, he is, as a Swahili speaker, he was able to communicate with the people in the East far more effectively than uh, Kabila. And Kabila really didn't try very hard. I mean, I don't recall that he uh, campaigned very hard uh, in Eastern Congo. Now, the most uh, interesting part of uh, the uh, electoral uh, saga, you might say, is the comeback of uh, Gizanga, Antoine Gizanga, who uh, polled uh, the third largest number of votes with 2.2 million votes and he now has 34 deputies in the assembly. Uh, his appointment to the post of prime minister was not totally unexpected. However, uh, his resurrection is nonetheless quite surprising. Uh, he's 81 years old. He was one associated with the uh, PSA, the uh, Parti Solidaire Africain. He was once seen as uh, a sympathizer uh, with, uh, the, uh, with a, 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 an penitent communist sympathizer, and he was uh, frequently seen with uh, Madame Blois, a Métis from Guinea, who was uh, very uh, closely identified with uh, Secouture's Parti Démocratique uh, Guinea. All this has contributed to project an image of Gizanga as a radical, whether he can still pose as a radical at 81 years of age, uh, I'm not sure. But I think this image uh, still uh, clings to him. And incidentally, if you really want to read a fascinating book about uh, Kabila's uh, early political career, uh, read Madame Blouin's uh, autobiography uh, titled My Country, Africa, Autobiography of the Black Passionaria. So um, do read it, and you will uh, find some, a wealth of very interesting uh, data. Now, what I just said about uh, regional polarization as one of the really important trends brought out by the uh, presidential race must be said against another uh, phenomenon, uh, which is, in fact, the opposite, and that is the extreme fragmentation of the political arena. The sheer number of parties represented in Parliament uh, reminds me of what I observed uh, in the Congo uh, in May 1960. I had a hard time uh, thinking that nearly half a century has gone by since uh, I witnessed the first experiment in multi-party democracy in May 1960. The parallel with the uh, May 1960 elections uh, is unmistakable, and uh, the uh, reasons, uh, I think, are easy to uh, identify. The immensity of the country, the geographical dispersion of its urban centers, 
The diversity of its ethnic configurations along with the intensity of the electoral competition and inability of the candidates to offer a meaningful choice to the electorate other than one based on region or ethnicity, uh, all of this came into play. Another uh, rather striking parallel with what I saw back in 1960 is that the main coalitions uh, were themselves uh, made up of smaller parties gravitating around a core uh, uh, party. So that, for instance, Kabila's uh, uh, alliance for the uh, uh, presidential majority is a kind of uh, federation of uh, smaller parties in which the key role is played by Kabila's uh, own party, the PPRD, the People's Party for Revolution and Development, which was really the uh, political instrument forged, forged by his uh, father to, uh, to uh, strengthen what uh, at the time was left of the state. Uh, not much. Now, if you look at the uh, coalition around uh, Bamba, you have much of the same kind of phenomenon in that uh, the unity for the nation is itself uh, a coalition of smaller parties gravitating around the MLC, the Movement for the Liberation of the Congo. So one of the problems that we're going to uh, uh, face in the near future is the dissolution of these uh, party uh, confederations. So the, uh, just to give you an example, the uh, AMP consists of uh, 33 uh, smaller parties. The Union for the Nation, Kabila's um, uh, presidential uh, front, includes 24 uh, smaller uh, parties. Now, the question then is, uh, what's going to happen in a National Assembly which is so fragmented? Well, I'm reminded of uh, the phrase coined by uh, Christopher Clapham about uh, clientelism of representation. And by that he, mean that he means that uh, deputies will probably act as power brokers or as providers of uh, strategic resources that will be funneled into the hands of the uh, provincial patrons uh, so that eventually they can push the provincial patrons to the fore. And this is uh, particularly important uh, in the Congo today. An example of this phenomenon is what recently happened in Bakongo. Uh, here's Bakongo right here. This is Kinshasa province. This is Bakongo. Bakongo uh, was solidly pro-Bamba during the presidential race and solidly pro-Bamba uh, during the uh, legislative uh, elections. And uh, the majority of the deputies in the provincial assembly were themselves pro-Bamba. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, who is elected governor? A Kabilist. And what happened is that uh, one deputy uh, in the Provisional Assembly who held the swing vote was persuaded, I don't know how, but decided to switch, to switch sides. 
So our carpet crossing is going to be a frequent phenomenon in the uh, legislatures. And as a result of this uh, phenomenon, the most uh, enthusiastic supporters of Bamba went on rampage in Matari. Uh, over 100 people were killed in an upsurge of violence that was finally uh, brought under control when the army was uh, sent to uh, quell uh, the right. Well, uh, this is only one example among uh, others. It's uh, interesting uh, to note that uh, today, um, maybe uh, out of uh, 11 uh, provinces, there will be about 26 uh, in a year from now, if everything goes well. But uh, you have only one governor uh, identified as a pro-Bamba governor, the governor, predictably, of the equator. All other governors are uh, pro-AMP, which shows you the extent to which Clapham's notion of uh, clientelism of representation can really uh, bring about some very dramatic uh, shifts from uh, one's uh, electoral stage to the next and from one uh, arena to, uh, to the other. Well, the um, clientelism of representation is not the only form of clientelism in the Congo. You see, the problem faced by uh, democratic transitions are inseparable from the, uh, the political and authoritarian baggage inherited from previous regimes, and this is particularly the case with regard to uh, the Congo. The Mobutist state has left an enduring imprint on the fabric of society. It has institutionalized a culture of corruption and clientelism that continues to influence public attitudes to authority as much as it shapes the ruler's attitude to the public. Clientelism in its, in its manifold manifestations, internal and external, is indeed a key feature of Congo politics. It is inherent is in what one of my uh, colleagues, alas now deceased, Jean-Francois Médard, described as neo-patrimonial rulership. And by that he mean uh, a system in which personalized exchange are the rule rather than the exception. A system in which uh, the public and the private spheres are but two sides of the same coin. Where the exchange of self-serving favors are the norm. Where connection and cash are the currencies of power. With the ruler cast in the role of a super patron dexterously handling carrots and sticks. Arguably, this legacy has largely survived the trials and tribulations of the 10-year interval between the demise of Mobutu and the advent of competitive elections. Now, the, the seizure of power by Laurent Kabila, Kabila Père, first as Kagame's cat's paw and then as his bitterest enemy, was once seen as emblematic of a fundamental rupture in uh, the tradition of Congolese politics, 
his advance, his, uh, his uh, advance to the presidency was uh, greeted by Madeleine Albright as one of those new leaders who was going to transform uh, the texture of politics, not only in the Congo, but in other parts of Central Africa, in Uganda, in Rwanda. And uh, I would suggest to you that uh, a closer look at the uh, Kabila interlude uh, suggests otherwise. I cannot go into uh, great detail, but I would like to um, <coughs> point out to you the, uh, that to an even greater extent than what could be observed under his predecessor, his power base was constructed on nepotism and cronyism and the selective allocation of prevents, mostly in the form of cash, real estate, and juicy corporate contracts. The rallying of prospective allies in the countryside proceeded from the same logic, the extension of material benefits for political support. At no time did his modus operandi constitute a break from previous practice, save perhaps for his more frequent recourse to force. Now, the emergence of Kabila Fis as the self-appointed successor to his father in January 2001 opened a new chapter in the very tortuous history of the Congo. Many important breakthroughs were registered, whereas his father constantly dragged his feet with regard to implementing the Lusaka agreements. It was much to his credit that he took the initiative in bringing forth the inter-Congolese dialogue, in negotiating the troop withdrawal with Rwanda and Uganda, in implementing the power-sharing arrangement that led eventually to uh, this uh, four plus one formula that preceded the uh, elections. So these are by no means small accomplishments. These are major, major accomplishments. But a closer scrutiny of the record suggests a more sober assessment. His years in office had little impact on the civil strife ravaging much of the eastern provinces, whether looked at from the standpoint of the proliferation of armed militias, the crescendo of rape and sexual torture inflicted to thousands of women, the continuing incursions of Rwandan soldiers and recurrent attacks against civilians mounted by the Rwanda-backed rebel leader Laurent Kunda, resulting in a massive displacement of civilians, the overall picture is one of undiminished rural unrest accompanied by appalling levels of poverty, disease, and malnutrition. Thus, to see the Kabila Fis presidency as the harbinger of a definitive turnaround strains credulity. As many have stressed, the continuing death toll is a reflection of the severe economic and social disruptions engendered by years of endemic violence. From another perspective, the inability of the transition government to cope effectively with the after effects of civil war is the legacy of a 
neo-patrimonial system incapable of promoting reform. And that is, I think, one of the real problems that the Congo is going to be uh, confronted with in months ahead. To the extent that the new polity uh, presents the uh, characteristics of a neo-patrimonial system based on uh, personalized favors, on uh, self-cannibalism, you might say, uh, on uh, the uh, all-pervasive influence of uh, clientelistic ties, promoting reform is going to be a very, very arduous task. The persistence of the neo-patrimonial nexus throughout Kabila's interim presidency explains why so little was done to lay the foundation of a viable state system. The cost of structural reforms were too high compared to the enormous benefits derived by the ruling elites. Giving up their private wealth and privileges for the sake of a distributive logic based on merit and performance would be tantamount to political suicide. In the absence of incentives for socioeconomic reform, neo-patrimonial rule thus becomes self-perpetuating, all the more so where the collapse of the state gives additional impetus to the vitality of personal ties. It has been said that although history never repeats itself, it sometimes rhymes. And I think that in the Congo you have this confluence uh, between the uh, present uh, situation and the past in that uh, at one level, which uh, I think is uh, one that uh, needs to be uh, discussed at some length, and that is the implications of political exclusion or what uh, is sometimes referred to as the sidelining of the opposition. The curse of exclusion is not a new phenomenon. It was already pregnant with violence in 2003 after the reshuffling of the cards at Sun City when many of the faction leaders in Ituri found themselves left out of the game. Today, the extent of Kabila's control of the new institutions makes it even more of a menace. We have to remember that sometimes success sets the table for a disaster. And it is the sheer extent of Kabila's success which I think could create major problems in the future. <clears throat> that the opposition candidate who won 42% of the vote in the second round of the presidential race should end up with not a single seat in the government and only one governorship out of 11 carries ominous implications. Now, it's not only uh, Kabila who's been, who's been left out of the spoils or out of the system. Bemba. So has, uh, it's not only Bemba, it's also uh, uh, Azaria Rubenwa, the head of the RCD in the Kivu, and uh, it is uh, also the uh, case for Etienne Chisekedi, the head of the uh, USPD, uh, who decided not to run for office because he disagreed with the Sun City Accord and to demonstrate his refusal to go along 
he decided not to enter the race, which is one of the reasons why you had a very low percentage of participants in the two Kasai because Kabila had issued an injunction to his people not to vote. The two Kasai are the one area in the Congo where uh, the vote never reached uh, a level higher than 40%. I think 40% is as high as, as it went in many of the districts. So exclusion uh, carries, as I said, uh, uh, extremely important uh, implications. Another threat stems from the institution that should play the most important role in uh, preserving stability of the country and protecting uh, its citizens, and that is the army. The FARDC, Forces Armées de la République Démocratique du Congo. Well, uh, security sector reform goes far beyond the military domain. It is closely tied up with the predator state and the cleansing, the cleansing of the public realm. This is probably the most important imperative at this particular stage. <clears throat> Today, as in the Mobutu years, the army is one of the worst perpetrators of human rights violations. And that is something that we should take very seriously. And the new government, of course. And just as in 1993, the Division Spéciale Présidentielle, the DSP, served as Mobutu's Praetorian Guard, whose fidelity rested on ethnic loyalties. Most of them were Bangalans. <clears throat> the same can be said of Kabila's 15,000-strong Groupe Spécial de la Sécurité Présidentielle, the military officially known as the FARD, is where corruption reaches truly alarming proportions. As one soldier admitted to a visiting journalist, I've been in the army for nine years and have only received the equivalent of a six-month pay. Attempts to uh, buy off warlords by repositioning them in the FARD at officers' ranks proved utterly counterproductive. You may have heard of the story of Peter Karim in Ituri, who was uh, given a fairly high rank in the army, spent a little bit of time uh, in the FAD, and ended up rejoining uh, his uh, militia in uh, Ituri a couple of months later. Now, uh, Peter Karim is only one case among many others that come to mind. And uh, we are here uh, dealing with uh, what is probably the most serious obstacle to the creation of an integrated army. The army, you have to remember, is made up of bits and pieces. Uh, part of it uh, is, uh, consists of militias from the MLC, others are Mai Mai, others are from the Mobutist uh, years, uh, others are from uh, the uh, Ituri uh, militias, uh, it is a, a, an extraordinarily diverse uh, army in terms of uh, its origins, and it is particularly among the Mai Mai, uh, that is uh, the army commanders that have been integrated through brassage, uh, 
mixing of different units, uh, those originating from the Mai Mai factions have proven particularly resilient, by that I mean particularly uh, reluctant, to uh, slough off their original loyalties uh, to their uh, uh, original uh, militias. Now, the point that I would like to uh, make now is that Rwanda is probably the most, the third most important threat to the new institutions. And the inability of the army to bring the militias under effective control, and most importantly, the FDLR, the Force Démocratique pour la Libération du Rwanda, numbering approximately 12,000, some say 15,000, nobody knows. But what is clear is that the bulk of the FDLR consists of former Interhamwe, who on the way must have also collected quite a few Hutu indigenous to, uh, to uh, North Kivu. The truth of the matter is that uh, with regard to the FDLR, as with many other things in the Congo, we know very, very little about uh, their social profile. And uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that um, the fact that you have so many FDLR militias floating around, particularly uh, in, in the Kivu, provides Rwanda with, with an ideal motive for sending the uh, ANR, the Armée Nationale Rwandaise, or now it's called, I think, the uh, Force de Défense Rwandaise, the uh, FDR, uh, into uh, eastern uh, Congo. And uh, not only that, but to give wholehearted support to uh, their local clients, both military and civilian. Uh, one uh, militia leader uh, uh, that you're going to hear a lot about in future uh, months is Laurent Kunda. Kunda Batware is his real name. He's a Tutsi from uh, North Kivu. Uh, he has wrought havoc in uh, many parts of uh, North Kivu. And uh, he is clearly uh, supported by Rwanda logistically and otherwise. But again, I mean, I'm speculating. But it's difficult to imagine that a, a faction leader like Kunda could have uh, uh, demonstrated such remarkable staying power over the years. He's the one who, uh, in 2002, when you had a major arriving going on in Stanleyville, uh, uh, he uh, moved in, brought in uh, soldiers from Rwanda, and uh, was said to have uh, killed some 200 civilians in the course of this punitive uh, uh, operation. And then uh, later on, during the uh, uh, very sad and costly uh, Bukavu episode in uh, 2004, he played a key role in uh, seizing uh, Bukavu and rounding up the population, arguing all along that he did that only because he wanted to preserve the lives of the uh, local population, and therefore was perfectly entitled to seize Bukavu militarily in order to protect his own people. These are still uh, very, very important issues. They have not been solved yet, and they're going to uh, continue to uh, be a source of major preoccupation. But I would say this to you, that um, the FDLR do not pose a mortal threat to Rwanda's security. They provide Rwanda with a very convenient pretext 
for continuing uh, for uh, continuing access to the mineral resources of Eastern Congo. This is where Rwanda's vital interests lie. There's no way that uh, Rwanda can survive economically without continuing massive support from the international community, as well as access to uh, the uh, mineral resources of uh, Eastern Congo. There is now going on in Kigali negotiations between uh, the, uh, the Nkunda militia, uh, the general staff uh, of, the, uh, of the Congolese army, and uh, Kagame. Kagame is posing as uh, a, a, a broker of sorts, as a uh, mediator. It will be very interesting to see what will come out of that, but I know that already there are strong protests among the self-styled uh, native Congolese who see uh, the perfidious hand of Rwanda in mediating this, uh, this uh, uh, dispute. I would like to uh, discuss finally, how much time do I have left? About five minutes. Okay. Why don't you give me ten minutes? About okay. Ten minutes. You have it. I would like to discuss the, um, what I call the, the dark side of Congolese democracy. Uh, I borrowed the phrase from, uh, from Michael Mann. Suppose elections are free and fair, and those elected are racists, fascists, separatists, said Richard Holbrook, reflecting on the future of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. That is the dilemma. It's fine to have elections, but what kind of people are being legitimized through the electoral process? Now, putting a slightly different construction on Holbrook's warning, suppose the men put in office through the transition consist of neo-patrimonial elites, unwilling to let go of their privileges. Suppose, in other words, that the main lineaments of the Mobutis state should reappear under the guise of multi-party democracy. If so, one wonders whether the move to democracy can do more than recycle the habits of the past. There's an even darker side to the present conjuncture which brings to mind, as I said, uh, Michael Mann's book on the dark side of democracy. He doesn't deal with the Congo. He deals with uh, Rwanda at some length. And it is a rather powerful and convincing argument. In it, Mann shows how through the Burkean law of unanticipated consequences, Regimes newly embarked on democracy can pave the way for the horrors of murderous ethnic cleansing, including genocide. Reduced to its simplest expression, the argument is that in a context of ethnic pluralism, rule by the people often translates into the rule of a dominant community, thus, and I quote, entwining the demos with the dominant ethnos, generating organic conceptions of the nation and the state that encourage the cleansing of minorities. Given the social context of the DRC, which is not that of Rwanda, 
it's quite unlikely that anything like that is going to materialize on a nationwide basis. Nonetheless, it brings into focus the continuing issue of the nationality between autochton and alloctone. What if the government in, Kiga, in, uh, in, in Kinshasa takes seriously uh, the uh, issue of supporting the autochton against the alloctone, that is, the self-styled uh, true Congolese against those who are, in most instances, uh, erroneously identified as uh, foreigners because most of the, of the, of the Rwandophon, the uh, Kenya Rwanda speakers in Eastern Congo, are indeed born uh, in the Congo. Nkunda was born in uh, North uh, Kivu. The Banyamulenge in South Kivu uh, are born in the Congo. And this is something which, uh, you know, is not always recognized. They're sometimes referred to in the Kivu as fake autochtone. Uh, les autochtones bidons, the false autochtones. <coughs> well, I'm coming to an end now. Uh, if only to compensate for the bleakness of such worst-case scenarios, the more positive aspects of the transition deserve special emphasis. One can hardly overstress the decisive role played by the UN presence in ensuring the relatively smooth unfolding of the electoral process. The contribution of the international watchdog organizations is no less impressive when one considers the wealth of critical information supplied through the outstanding reports of advocacy and human rights groups and other NGOs, the excellence of analytical reporting by crisis group, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the Pretoria-based Institute for Security Studies, to name but a few, has contributed significantly to inform and alert international public opinion to the daunting complexity of the multifaceted tasks involved in uh, reconstruction. And to the extent that advocacy in human rights groups, women's organizations, local media and church groups in the DRC have contributed to create a public space for the diffusion of democratic norms, much of the credit for this goes to the international community, but I, would want, I wouldn't want to minimize the role of the civil society uh, in the DRC. I know that the civil society covers a very wide spectrum of political families, beliefs, ideology, including, of course, uh, militia groups. But out of this uh, concatenation of NGOs, some, I think, have and will continue to play a very important role in facilitating the transition uh, to democracy. As Staffan Lindbergh, my colleague in Gainesville, perceptively observed, and I quote, there is power in elections. There is power in elections. That power propels democratization in the sense of improving the democratic quality of participation, competition, and legitimacy in society outside the electoral sphere. So, <clears throat> to return to our opening quote, there is every reason to agree with Le Carré's bad guy that elections won't bring democracy, but to predict chaos is premature. 
Winners have indeed scooped the pool, for the time being at least. But the nascent judicial, legislative, and peace-building institution suggests an important alternative to telling the losers to go and fuck themselves. Nor is it foreordained that they will take to the bush, even though that, eventu that eventuality is, of course, uh, a distinct uh, possibility. So, once again, the Congo has embarked on a very uncertain journey for which there are no reliable roadmaps. All we have is a large pool of reckless drivers. It promises to be a rough ride, but probably not a fatal one. Thank you. people escape, who need to escape, we have about half an hour where we can pose questions to Professor Le Marchand. I should um, let everyone know that, that, in fact, this whole session is being recorded and will be made available online for public consumption as a podcast. So know that when you speak, you speak to the world. <laughs> now, um, just, just while people put on their thinking caps and, 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 and ask some questions, I'd like to actually put a first question to you. Um, sure. It's, I'll do it a, a double-barreled one so that you, you, you can um, introduce um, this period of, of, of answers. Uh, it seems to me that despite what you might analyze as Rwanda's overarching objective, for as long as there exists the FDLR as an organized and well-armed uh, territorial <laughs> right over the border um, on the one hand, and as long as there is what is something that you didn't talk too much about but hinted at, are quite a vibrant um, and vigorous anti-Tutsi discourse that is part of what unites Congolese elite, such as it's united right now, then there's a, a legitimate claim by Kagame and his regime to be, to be extremely worried about what goes on across the border, and a claim that could be made in light of the international community for future intervention. I mean, that's the first thing. The second thing is, how can we talk about any future for democracy without an integrated military? Um, and so do you see any kind of green shoots for progress being made in that, in that regard? I'll sit down. All right. You can sit there for your Let me, uh, first of all, uh, tackle the first question about Rwanda. Uh, I really think uh, that the threat posed by the uh, FDLR to the security of Rwanda is exaggerated. But, of course, the threat to the local population is not. And uh, I tend to view the FDLR as a major, major problem, so don't get me wrong. But I think that uh, the real reason for uh, Rwanda to, uh, uh, to invoke uh, the threat of the FDLR is uh, an ulterior one, namely to have access to the wealth of the Congo. This is my feeling. And, of course, I perfectly understand the fears of uh, 
the local uh, Kenya Rwanda speaking people uh, of being at the mercy of uh, you know the local uh, so-called uh, authentic uh, Congolese, the autochton, and I understand their uh, their uh, fury at uh, being uh, accused of being uh, fake uh, autochton. We're getting into a very very complicated series of historical events. Uh, one of the things that uh, recurs time and again in the discourse that I hear from my, uh, uh, my authentic Congolese friends is uh, that um, the Banyamulenge uh, are the ones who uh, seize control of all the provincial institutions in the wake of the uh, Rwandan invasions. The Rwanda, whether we like it or not, are associated with uh, an invading force. Uh, the degree of uh, hatred that Rwanda inspires among uh, the Congolese is perhaps the one element that brings them together. <laughs> and uh, I really uh, don't think that uh, it's a good idea to uh, minimize the threat of the FDLR, and I hope that it is eventually brought under control. All I'm saying is that uh, the, the share of responsibility in this very, very tragic situation, you find it in Rwanda, you find it also in the Congo. I mean, I remember very vividly uh, back in the uh, 90s, before the uh, 1998 uh, <coughs> civil war, the Banyamulenge were the target of enormous uh, cruelties. They were virtually excluded from uh, the sphere of legitimate obligations towards one citizen. Uh, Let me move on to the second question about the army. Uh, restructuring the army is essential. Uh, how to do it, I'm not sure. But I would like to uh, make uh, three points. First of all, uh, the uh, donor's assistance to uh, the military uh, in the Congo has been poorly coordinated. Uh, South Africa has played an important role. NATO, French have played a role. Belgians have trained, uh, I think, uh, two brigades, if not more, uh, which is, of course, not enough. Today you have about 14 brigades that are integrated and operational. The brassage, which means the mixing of units, uh, you know, taking uh, troops from one uh, armed establishment or another and putting them together into an integrated brigade is an extremely difficult uh, process. And um, I remember back in 2002 when uh, the Monuc tried to integrate some uh, interahamwe, and this was done so clumsily that uh, the, uh, the interahamwe decided to, uh, to go on rampage. The Monuc soldiers uh, used their weapons to kill about 200. Uh, one hardly heard anything about uh, this very, very unfortunate turn of events, which came about essentially by uh, poor uh, understanding of uh, how these interhamway were going to be integrated, how many would go back to Rwanda, how many would... This is a complex business, an extraordinarily complex 
So uh, better coordination at the top is essential. To give the uh, integrated soldiers enough to eat, decent uniforms, regular pay, this is absolutely essential. And three, try to get hold of a paymaster general who will uh, pay the army and the officers' corps and will not put uh, half of the uh, pay in his own pockets. Now take uh, the example of what happened uh, back in December 2004 when the Rwandans uh, moved into Kamitunga, infiltrated the Congo. They were apparently, uh, who were, I mean, were they really uh, uh, Rwandan soldiers or uh, RDC troops? No one really knows. It's a rather murky story. But that's not my point. My point is that uh, Kinshasa immediately sent troops and uh, a cargo load of weapons and, uh, and food and so on and so forth. And all this was handled by Bemba, who owns an airline. And he charged the cost of the transport to the state, even though he himself was one of the four vice presidents. And fortunately, none of these provisions reached the troops. What do you think happened? Again, they went on rampage. And they helped themselves. Uh, you know, they, uh, they, they lived high on the hog. Well, it's not really the expression that's suitable here, but they, you know, they stole and killed. What better example of the uh, Dallot's uh, thesis about uh, the benefits drawn from uh, turbulence and war? I mean, here is somebody like Bamba who clearly has a stake in keeping the pot boiling. The more conflicts you have, the more money he uh, rakes off. That has to stop. Well, this is only uh, the beginning. I think this should really uh, be, uh, James, and I think we are very much in the same wavelength, the uh, priorité des priorités, you know, as, as the French say, this should be given a very high order of priority. Okay, we have lots of questions, so we'll, we'll, maybe I'll take a few. May, may I do that? Uh, Professor Cody? Muzon Cody of uh, Chatham House here in London. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor, for uh, an excellent uh, lecture. I'd like to just make a few comments on uh, what you've said. I don't think we should uh, exaggerate the significance of uh, regionalism in the elections. The, can, can you speak to that? The East-West divide I don't think is that important. If you look at the uh, presidential uh, coalition. It's made up of people from all over the place, even those from Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Nzanga himself, Mobutu's son, is from Ecuador. That's right. He's not from the East. The Prime Minister, who's part of the coalition, is from the West. He's from Bandung. And uh, if you look at those people who were elected to various positions in Parliament, you see also a wide uh, distribution of people. 
And the government doesn't show any east-west divide either. So I don't think we should uh, really exaggerate the uh, significance of this. Uh, the coalitions you talked about, which are around uh, two main parties, uh, one thing that you have to look at uh, in analyzing the future of these coalitions is how these coalitions came together. There's no one single program that brought all these parties uh, together. They don't have any shared vision of the future for the DRC. These are people who are just positioning themselves for, uh, posi uh, for positions in the uh, government. On the very crucial issue that we have to resolve, that of the uh, security sector reform, uh, and that everything that you said is true, but mixing some of the worst human rights violators in the country and even paying them the highest salaries would not change them into uh, the kind of force that the Congo needs. What you need to do is to clean up uh, that particular, what they call now the army of all those elements. And you also, that's more fundamental, look at the underlying culture of armed forces in the DRC. That particular culture it has been inherited from la force publique, mm -hmm. the colonial army, which taught very clearly uh, the uh, uh, soldiers during the uh, colonial times that the civilians were the enemies, the civilians were the farm, and a soldier could go and farm among civilians anytime he wanted. So those are just a few comments. Thank you. Should, should I well, take a few comments, or do you want to? Well, let me respond to that, respond. because yeah. uh, okay. I, I don't think there's a uh, fundamental disagreement between uh, you and I. I agree with everything you said. Uh, and uh, I, I realize that I should have uh, qualified uh, some of my comments. Uh, the reason why I didn't talk about uh, the uh, uh, Francois Mobutu phenomenon uh, in Gwensa and uh, also uh, Kabila is that I felt that I was a little pressed for time, and I thought that it would be a good idea to draw the attention of the audience to what is, after all, the main line of cleavage between East and West. But I also agree with you that this may not be uh, a, a permanent uh, line of cleavage, that uh, what has been uh, brought out by the uh, presidential election is a, uh, a polarization. And I think that I've emphasized that it is really uh, in contradiction with the fragmentation pattern brought out by the uh, legislative elections. And the fact that you have these two major uh, coalitions the Bamba coalition and the uh, Kabila coalition, uh, operating as if they were, uh, you know, single units, which they are not. I think that the possibility of an unraveling of these uh, coalitions is a very real one. I also agree with what you said about uh, the army. We need to weed out, weed out those elements that are simply uh, not uh, recuperable. And there are, uh, and here I think that I would like to open a, a quick parenthesis. 
most people refer to uh, warlords as if they were all the same. They are not. There are warlords and warlords. It's one of the things that I'm uh, looking at now, trying to uh, discriminate between different types of warlord. And Kunda is not Karim. And Karim is not Padiri. And uh, Padiri is not uh, the head of the uh, FDLR, whatever his name may be. So I agree with you entirely. With uh, I think we are really uh, in, in, in complete agreement. And uh, I'm sorry that I didn't really spell out some of the points that I was trying to make. My name is uh, Frederick Yamusangi. I'm a Congolese playwright and novelist. Um, one of the problems I've realized with your talk that I realize you and I, um, uh, we don't really get the same facts at the same place. You probably get the established one, we get the one from the community, or because we call home almost every day. And uh, one of the things you didn't bring in your, your talk is the, the influence of the uh, multinational um, in uh, the way of, of interfering in the electoral process on the political of the Congo. Uh, the people, I don't know, I can name their names, but you know, I don't want to. Um, in one of the cases, most of the politicians who have been either attacking Kabila uh, personally, they didn't have any problem. There's only one lady who actually spelled out the interests of a multinational, Mama uh, Marie Therese uh, Lando. Now she's, uh, she's in prison. She's, uh, I don't know if people know she's been tortured or for this in the prison. And uh, because of we have to have our mobile phones ready and things, we just don't bring the multinational in a way that the way we see Congo, Bemba, and Kabila, and even the, them going to uh, South Africa to talk. It was not Kabila's choice. It was the a boom of Coltan. We had the 1999 mm -hmm. uh, um, rebellion and the crush of Coltan, and we had the peace treaty. And I didn't say it is a channel for it. So I think. If we bring together with the, we bring the multinational uh, together, then we can solve the problem of even a, uh, Mama Landu could be easily freed because she's still in prison, mm -hmm. and she's a mm -hmm. prisoner of conscience. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was I'm surprised I didn't hear you, you criticize Kabila for that or either Bemba left him alone. Thank you. Thank you. This is uh, a very pertinent uh, observation. Unfortunately, I didn't have much time to uh, develop my section on clientelism, which involves both domestic and external clientelism. Uh, Foreign-linked clientelism is an essential dimension of the political equation today. You cannot leave out foreign-linked clientelism. And you find this in the relations between Nkunda and Kigali. You find this in the relations between uh, the Ituri militias and the Uganda government. Uganda has played an extremely nefarious role in uh, Ituri. Uh, I think that uh, we should recognize that uh, Museveni, but did he really control his uh, sub-patrons? Uh, but it is clear that as the Ugandans moved into Ituri and each army commander trying to finagle a deal with one or the other of the warlords, 
This has had a disastrous impact uh, on the whole political spectrum in Ituri. Now, the foreign nationals, that's an interesting aspect of uh, foreign-linked uh, clientelism. They are directly involved, uh, including Victor Bout, the uh, Russian arms dealer, who's made enormous fortune out of shipping lethal weapons to uh, Eastern Congo. Now, the, uh, the deal is quite simple. I mean, uh, you need weapons to kill. And who are you going to kill? You're going to kill those that you identify as your enemies as you try to get your hands on diamonds and gold and Colton. And they have to get out of the way because you need to get hold of these precious minerals in order to sell them, in order to buy weapons from Victor Boots and others. Now, there's a whole chain of uh, subcontractors along the way, which, uh, in fact, the political equation is much more complex than that. But I think that, uh, uh, yes, uh, again, I'm sorry that I didn't expand upon that. I should have, but I didn't have time. Just behind you, sorry, first. <coughs> Jean-Roger Kaseki, lecturer at London Met University. Where? London Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, from your lecture, I understood that uh, security in the DRC is still fragile. And uh, the roadmap is insecure. Clearly, Congo needs the international community help beyond election. However, last Thursday, the UN Security Council extended the UN mandate in the DRC only for two months. Why is that? I wish I could answer your question, but uh, I've not been privy to uh, Ban Ki-moon's uh, reason for uh, not pushing the issue uh, or the date of the uh, prolongation of the UN mandate beyond two months. And I think it is uh, a very regrettable uh, thing to do for the Security Council. It is terribly important for the international institutions to remain engaged, to stay on. It is terribly important for the SEAT not to, uh, you know, to leave the country. I mean, they've played an extremely important role in the past, and uh, they will have uh, further responsibilities in the future, at least I hope. If uh, President Kabila were to take a unilateral decision and send them packing, I think that the, the, uh, the, uh, the consequences could be extremely uh, uh, serious. So uh, the fact that uh, the Security Council has renewed the mandate of the Monuc for two months, I think this is probably to uh, give a breathing space to the negotiations that are going on now, that will be going on between the international uh, community and the new government. I think uh, the new government has, hasn't yet found its, its legs. I mean, uh, the, you know, things are still a little bit wobbly. But uh, my hope is that uh, uh, the Monuc and the Siat 
will continue to operate in the Congo because their presence is absolutely indispensable, particularly the 17,000 uh, soldiers under the uh, tutelage of the, uh, the Monique. If you, uh, if you uh, uh, imagine what could happen if uh, the uh, destiny of the Congolese were entrusted to an army which is still uh, in the process of being uh, reconstructed, you know, this uh, would not be uh, very good news. Gabi Hesselbein. Gabi Hesselbein, Crisis States Research Center. Penny, I would like you to get a bit more in detail about the, the combination you see and the, the anal analysis you make between neo-patrimonialism and these ethnic or regional networks. Um, as far as I understand it, formal institutions, formal state institutions have unraveled since a long time, since decades in Congo. So to, to organize life, to organize survival, to organize access to resources, to organize security, to organize anything, you have to somehow rely on the people you can reach, you can trust, um, and that comes comes back to ethnicity, including uh, institutions of security like the Mai Mai in some regions, or uh, for that, uh, even Kunda. Uh, by the way, there is an agreement between... Uh, there is an agreement between the Nkunda uh, troops and uh, the so-called integrated army um, to... Um, two battalions uh, of Nkunda and two of the army are to split into half and form two new, uh, uh, two new uh, battalions. So I really question who is uh, integrating whom in, in that case. Um, so the, the split, the networks uh, have been created over the decades in order to achieve something. I mean, in a population that has uh, something to eat every second day, if, if, if we speak uh, of the majority. What, what possibilities do you see to overcome this sort of survival mechanism or, and communication mechanism in the absence of nationwide structures? Well, that's a large question. Uh, <coughs> how do you go about reconstructing the state? Well, uh, maybe we can have another lecture uh, some couple of months on the road. But anyway, um, let me uh, make a couple of things clear about uh, the neo-patrimonial model that I used. Uh, I think that it has to be taken with uh, a grain of salt. I mean, to see patrimonial or neo-patrimonial rule everywhere uh, certainly uh, would be um, incautious. But <clears throat> I'm just catching out a pattern. This is not a photography of reality, but I think it helps us get a handle on the texture of politics. And it's something which is not unique to the Congo, you find it uh, elsewhere. And when you talk about new patrimonial rule, you talk about uh, nominally modern institutions. You talk about parties, you talk about legislatures, you talk about a government that are penetrated by personalized ties. Uh, you find them in trade unions, in cooperatives, they are grafted onto nominally modern institutions. But this means that the way in which these modern institutions operate 
is, uh, is it's not entirely modern, it's not entirely traditional, it's in between. You're in, in a gray zone, uh, but I think that the uh, usefulness of the uh, patron-client tie is that it applies to uh, domestic internal patterns of dependency as between, say, uh, uh, the My My Warlords. Uh, some of them may be described as social bandits, others as ethnic patrons, uh, whatever. Uh, one would have to uh, clarify this. It applies also to relationships between factions and their external patrons as well. Now, there is an exchange taking place. It, just, it doesn't just happen. And the difficult thing is to uh, see what kind of deals are being uh, bartered. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, um, uh, how can we move away from this logic into something uh, that would allow the reconstruction of the state, which is, I think, uh, the question that, that you raised? Well, the two can go hand in hand. Uh, you know, you had patron client ties in New York during the uh, late 19th century. Uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the machines uh, in Detroit, in New York, in Chicago, these were ethnic machines. You had blocks of voters. Some were Hungarian. Others were uh, uh, German. Others were Italian. These were ethnic machines, much in the same way that some parties in the Congo operate. And if you look at such and such a party, it's, a, it's an ethnic party which has been incorporated into a larger coalition. And there are, of course, ties of fidelity between uh, the local bosses and their subordinates. But, uh, I mean, this can have a positive effect. Sometimes it can allow resources to percolate downstream into the uh, rural uh, capillaries. Uh, that's one possibility. Or uh, another possibility is that the patrons would put everything in their pockets and forget about their clients, in which case, uh, you know, uh, they'll have problems because the clients will uh, vote with their feet and they'll be looking for alternative patrons. So uh, I think that the reason why I mentioned this is that it gives us a way of looking at Congo politics rather than going through, you know, uh, a shopping list of parties and so forth. We're, we're, get, we're running out of time, so what I think I might do is call on a number of people to, to, to make um, their, their brief question and, okay. and give you a chance okay. to sort of, in, you know, answer several people at one time. I, forgive me if I can't get to everybody. Um, uh, who, who did I see over here? Uh, um, back there, yeah. Uh, uh, my name is Etienne Mokadi. I'm a spokesman of UDPS of uh, Etienne Tisekedi. Uh, um, my question is, uh, always if uh, people talk for Congo like this, is, uh, as Congolese we feel better that, that there are some people who uh, think about the Congo. But the disappointment is when you talk about the Congo, you forgot about to mention the many factor which is blocking democracy in Congo, which is the Western power. Because if Kabila is today in power, is the, uh, the Western power who imposed him in Congo. Now you talked about uh, the back, uh, dark side of uh, Congolese democracy. My point of view is that the dark side is the Western power. 
because they are going to impose Kabila with his government and as we are going to resist. This is the big challenge because everybody today in Congo knows that the people in power, they are not Congolese and they are not there for the uh, uh, Congo interest. Tomorrow or after tomorrow, when our time will come, we will resist. But in your lecture, you have not mentioned anywhere the role played by the Western power. Okay. I'll, I'll give you the name of Louis Michel. You know him? Yes. Yeah, but you never mentioned him. The former chief bet. of staff? No, no, Louis Michel is the U, UN commissioner for U, humanitarian aid. Oh, I thought you meant EU, yeah, EU, EU, EU uh, commissioner for humanitarian uh, head in, 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 you never mentioned it. Okay. And then I don't know how are you going to, because everybody in this room, when they go out, they will see that it's Congolese who are responsible for <laughs> Congolese chaos. Okay, thank you. I, I thank you very give, much. I want to give everybody a chance to say a quick word, please. Coordinator of CC UK. Thank you very much. That stands for Coordination of Congolese in the United Kingdom. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for the conference. Um, it's nice to talk about a country with immense wealth and uh, uh, very, very resourced. Unfortunately, the resources and the wealth do not benefit the Congolese themselves, but everything goes away. Uh, Congolese have got a long history of welcoming foreigners. I think you remember the the Biafra war in Nigeria, and also war in Angola. We welcome them without any problem. Our problem now is that war in, in, in Rwanda brought the Rwandese to Congo, and now the interest of the Rwandese is at the top of our government. We see Rwandese everywhere in the top of the government, and the Congolese are taking the back step. And this is really orchestrated by the international community. That's why we feel frustrated. That's why Congolese here feel that we are not part of that country, but to get in that country, we have to fight. And Congolese will not stand back. They will fight. Okay. We would like you to suggest what the way forward. Is it anything new from Kabila to Kabila? Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yes. <coughs> right in front, yeah. You, you. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Looking for the mic. Thank you very much. It's very interesting that you started with a quote with John Le Carré. Also, I quote him saying that Congo is fucked up by the Catholic Church, by the Belgian, by the British, by the multinational, and by their own government. And he said it was time they had a break. It was a time we had a break. Now, I understand that you are of Belgian origin. No, no. Oh, sorry. I got it wrong. <laughs> The first thing we do is Congo is a country that does not need any aid. We can grow food. It's very fertile. We have all the wealth. If Belgium, Belgium, the Belgian government gives us back the $10 billion they stole at the independence, we can finance the army. We can rebuild new institutions, but they are not. That's the first thing. The second thing is about the, the Banyamulenge. The Banyamulenge came as refugees in Congo. We accepted them. And every time... Not all, not all of them. Let me come. Let me finish. All of them, when they come to Congo, we welcome them. And now, if they are Congolese, why did they side the Rwandan and kill 5 million Congolese? 
That's, you can call yourself Congolese and then you kill fellow Congolese. Okay. And then the third, the last question is about the, the Mobutuism break. There was a break when Kabila Laurent came to power, the father. He tore all the contract that Mobutu had signed with the multinational, and that's why he died. And now that he's dead, all these contracts are being revived. I give you a proof. No single Western government, American, British, Belgian, French, they have never investigated the responsibility of multinational into the war. But we have a UN report which is saying clearly everything. Why is that so? Okay. That's my question. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I'm a student here at the London School of Economics. Uh, my question is this, based on your research into the history of Congo and, and the region generally, um, have you observed that when groups have uh, um, a socioeconomic status that is comparable, that is they're relatively the same, does that increase conflict or, or decrease it? And, and, and the, situation, the other uh, situation is if a group is... Uh, significantly, significantly advantage socioeconomically uh, and can crush most rivals. Does that assist in stability? Although it, you know, it may be politically incorrect to, to think that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, right in the back corner. Yeah. Oh, one second. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, have you spent almost uh, 25 years uh, in Zaire and the Republic of Congo and the, now the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo. Sorry. In, 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 can you hear me through this, sir? Yeah. If you have to hold it right up there, yeah. Um, I, I make some observations, and that uh, uh, things have got sort of no better since the I days of Mobutu. No, I can't, I can't hear right you. Hello. Right. Yeah. Okay. 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 Things have got no better since the days of Mobutu. Um, Kabila, father, sort of came into power. Uh, now we have the son. Do you see in a short term or long term any improvement which will be to the benefit of the Congolese people who have really suffered so much? Can you please answer that? Thank, please? thank you. Uh, yeah, the gentleman right there. Thank you. My name is Malcolm Harper. I uh, do a lot of work with an informal coalition on the wider Great Lakes region. Uh, you said in concluding your lecture, if I can paraphrase you, uh, the Congo has embarked on a very uncertain journey but it promises to be a rough, not a fatal ride. In terms of the Great Lakes region and the peace process there, I think everybody has agreed that the influence of the Congo on the wider region is essential if that wider process is going to succeed. Given the roughness of the ride that you presage for the Congo, do you think there will be enough that's good in it for the Congo to be able at last to wield a beneficial rather than a negative attitude and, and uh, position in the Great Lakes region. Okay, I think I, I have to stop there. There are still, I know, many, many questions, but uh, we're, we're running over time, so I want to give uh, Professor Le Marchand one last chance to, to answer some of that. That's a huge <laughs> agenda of questions, and, 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 well, and I appreciate all your comments. Well, some of these questions really cut across each other, so I'm going to try to uh, respond collectively to uh, some of the discussion, but first of all, the uh, rough ride uh, question. I don't have a crystal ball, and I really cannot tell uh, whether the uh, 
the spillover effects of a crisis, another crisis in the Congo, how this uh, would affect the destinies of the states around. But this is the major preoccupation, I think, of the international community. And uh, this also uh, takes me back to the question raised by this gentleman in the back. Uh, will uh, the Kabila Fis presidency bring uh, relief and uh, a, a, a better life, shall we say, to the uh, people of the Congo? Again, I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. It's very difficult for me. Uh, to foresee what's going to happen a year or two down the road. It can go either way. I mean, uh, we can, uh, it can blow up, you know, in our face uh, in, in the next three or four months, although I doubt it, or it can go very smoothly. It's one of the things that I've noticed about the Congo, and I've looked at the Congo for a long time. Uh, you know, uh, everything is possible. There's no way that it can possibly... I mean, you know, I've predicted the fall of Mobutu uh, 20 years before uh, he finally uh, <laughs> fell. So don't trust my judgment, please. <laughs> All the guesses that I've made turn out to be wrong. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I have to uh, be uh, quite honest with you. I'm speculating. That's about as much as we can do. But uh, going back to the questions about the uh, nefarious influence of Western powers, well, first of all, who are the Western powers? Uh, you know, this really encompasses uh, a, a large number of actors, and certainly uh, the uh, role of the United States is not that of Belgium or France. The role of the United States today is rather modest. It certainly was not modest when uh, the United States were funding uh, the CIA on the large scale, manipulating, uh, you know, the uh, execution of Patrice Mulumumba, who was seen as the vector of Soviet influences in the Congo. So, you know, I'm personally, I'm uh, not unhappy to see the United States turning its gaze to other uh, conflict areas in the Congo. Uh, there's one uh, conflict area. Uh, where they will be turning more than their gaze, and I don't need to elaborate upon that. Uh, the Iraq uh, conflict is going to keep us busy for a long time. Uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the Western powers historically have played a, a negative role. This doesn't mean that uh, they will continue to play a negative role. I think that the role of the uh, international community, I don't know whether this is what you have in mind, has been, on the whole, a rather positive uh, since uh, the arrival of uh, Kabila Fis in 2001. <clears throat> and this is why I would like, uh, in conclusion, to uh, re-emphasize as strongly in the strongest possible terms uh, the indispensability of maintaining a UN presence in the Congo. It is not that uh, the Congolese are not to be trusted. I mean, uh, I think that one finds uh, among the Congolese as many brilliant uh, and uh, dedicated uh, people as anywhere else. Uh, but will they find a way of making a difference? And this is where I think uh, the uh, Western powers could uh, make a difference, if only by giving all of you Congolese in this room the opportunities 
to develop the skills that will be uh, in use, badly in use, in the Congo in months ahead. Professor Le Marchand, I want to thank you very much for coming to the LSE, and we hope you come back again pleasure. before too long. Yeah. In the summer. In the summer. Thank you. It was, it was a pleasure, really, uh, to, uh, to listen to you, and uh, I do hope that uh, I will be back, hopefully uh, not in the winter.